Dear Lord, thank you for tonight. You've given us today, and uh, just thank you for this opportunity just to bring us all here and uh, read your word, Lord, and be with Pastor Jesse and give him the words to speak tonight. And just pray, amen. All right, amen. Go ahead and find a seat. If you need a Bible, don't have a Bible. There's a stack of them on that back table, all of those blue Bibles back there. And if you want to take notes, there's also a whole stack. There's actually three stacks of uh, KF student notebooks back there. You can take one of those, have one of those, and use that tonight. So, I have a quick question for you guys. If you could know things about your future, would you want to know? Okay, some of you are like, no, no. Why would you, hold on, why would you not want to know? Okay, so if you knew you would change your future, is that what you're saying? Okay, what if it's a really good future? You'd mess it up anyway? So, okay, all right. All right, so those of you who said, no, nah, I'm, I'm not calling you tonight, Nathan, I love you, not tonight. <laughs> who, who, who in here said yes, you would want to know your future? What's that? Certain scenarios. Certain scenarios. So you want to know the good things? Well, if I'm like about to take a test, then I would see the future, see if I got a good grade of what I like wrote down. Okay. If I got a bad grade, I would write down more. Okay. Or go back and study more and make sure. Okay, yeah. How many of you have ever gotten a bad test you, or grade you wish you had known you were getting that grade so you would have gone back and studied more? Can I give you a suggestion? Just study more in the first place. No, I was like, why would I do that? It doesn't make any sense. Well, here's, here's the reason I ask you that question. Because if you guys remember, we've started walking through, or we've been walking through for a while now, the book of Daniel. And in the last couple of weeks, what we've done is we've seen a transition here, especially last week. Um, we see where Daniel has gone from talking about the history of what he's experienced so far in the first six chapters of this book, but in chapter seven, it transitioned, and now what Daniel has done is he's gone back in time a little bit, and he's telling us about visions that God gave him, but the visions that God gave him are about things that are going to happen in the future, and a lot of times we think, you know what, if I could just know the future, if I could know the, the good things, I could be ready for them, if I could know the bad things, I could maybe avoid those things, and we think knowing the future would be a good thing. But it's also possible that if we knew our future, it would not be a good thing for us. In fact, Daniel, we're going to find tonight, as he sees future things that are going to happen, Daniel actually, Scripture tells us, gets physically ill because he is so worried and so stressed about what he's seen that God has shown him about the future. It makes him sick. But even in the midst of that, we see Daniel do something that Daniel has done this entire book. Daniel has remained faithful. Scripture tells us that he gets up and he goes about the king's work. He still continues to remain faithful to God and do what God's called him to do as he sees these crazy things going on. So let's jump into what's happening with this second vision tonight. But before we do that, I'm getting too ahead of myself. We've got questions we walk through every week. And if you've not been here and you don't know the answers to these questions, it's okay. You're going to hear a lot of people yell out the answers. It's because for like 12 weeks now, I've been asking them the same questions over and over. For instance, who wrote the book of Daniel? Daniel. Daniel. How old do we he was when he was taken into captivity? 1516. What's the, what's the nation that came in and conquered Israel? That's why I don't call on you tonight. What was the king's name of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, when do we believe this book was written? Around the 6th century BC and what is, no, what is the main theme, the central idea of this book? 
God's sovereignty. Okay, if no if nobody else answers, Sarah's going to say that one every single time. It's God's sovereignty. It's this idea that God is in control. God is in control of all of human history. Even when things are going off the rails and it makes no sense and you wonder, God, why in the world would you let that happen? God is still in control. Just as much as he's in control when everything's going great. Because the sovereignty of God is something that doesn't change. So we're just going to start walking through this passage. Let me pray for us and we'll do that. God, again, we thank you that we can be here tonight. We thank you that we can come together and we can spend time in your word and see what it meant then, God, and how that meaning still holds true for us today and how we can live out our relationship with you in light of what your word shows us. I pray that you'll help us to understand what we can understand tonight and help us to be different because we've been in your presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Daniel, chapter 8, verse 1. I'm not going to make you stand up yet, but that is coming. It says in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So what Daniel's doing here is Daniel is an old man now. He's probably in his, uh, I want to say he's probably in his 70s here. He's an old man, and he's going back in time. So he's saying, hey, there was a time I had this vision, and when I had this vision, God showed me things about stuff that was going to happen in the future, which is kind of weird. It hurts your brain going back and forth like that. But that's what he's talking about here. And he's saying that I'm going to tell you exactly what God showed me, and he says this in verse 2. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now, just a little geographical information, this place called Susa, it was actually located about 200 miles east of Babylon. So Daniel is having this vision, but this place that he's seen himself in this vision, it's a real place. In the vision, he's there, but in real life, he's not there. He's still in Babylon. This is just part of what God's showing him. And here's where things get weird, and I've already told him this, so I have no problem saying this. Because we're getting to a really weird part of scripture, I wanted one of the weirdest people in the room I know to read that passage for us. So Mr. Chase Brimhall, come on up here tonight. Let's go, Chase. And if you would, please stand with us in honor of reading a chunk of God's word. And we'll follow along verses 3 through 14. Take it away, Chase. We got to turn his microphone on. Ah, uh, come on. Come on. Hey, y'all give it up for our sound crew. We got new folks learning stuff tonight. Yeah, but we need it for, for the recording. It's on. Nope, it's not on. It's Sarah's. Talk. Hello? There we go. Yeah! All right. Verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his, full, in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke into his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great 
but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts, and some of the stars it threw down to the ground, and it trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, a transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. All right, let's pray one more time. God, we thank you. We thank you for, again, the opportunity to be here, to be in your word. Lord, help us to understand what we can understand tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all give it up for Mr. Chase. And I, Chase, I was corrected. I wasn't, I was told you aren't the weirdest person. I know you're just willing to do a lot of things, which makes you do weird things, and that's what makes you seem weird. So we all love you, Chase, and we're glad you're here tonight. All right, so in this there's some weird stuff happening here. Okay, we, we've got a goat with horns, we've got a ram with a horn, we've got a fight, we've got broken horns, we've got four new horns, we've got a little horn, there's stars and a burnt offering, and some kind of time frame of 2300 evenings and mornings. All pretty confusing. And as I said last week, we're not going to dig into every detail, but there are some things that we can clearly understand. But I mean, how, how much better would it be if God just said, hey, here's what's going to happen, instead of all of this stuff? I mean, you probably wanted that same thing about your own life. Is it, God, why won't you just tell me what's going to happen? One question that, that Miss Kathleen and I have probably had the conversation with more teenagers is this. It's, what is God's will for my life? And usually that's in relation to, where am I supposed to go to college, or who am I supposed to date, or who am I going to marry, or what's my career going to be, when you're trying to figure out what is my future. And so often it would be so simple if God would just say, okay, turn to this page right here in the Bible, and it says, go here, do this, date that person, marry that person, take that job, and life will be great. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? But God doesn't do that. God doesn't always give us those straight, clear answers. Now, he does give us some answers in his word. When we talk about what is God's will for your life, one of the main things you'll find over and over and over is to glorify him and pursue your relationship with Jesus every single day. That's God's will for your life. All that other stuff will be a part of it, but that's what scripture tells us that we're supposed to pursue on an everyday basis. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of question because that question comes from a desire to know what's going to happen because we want to know how our choices are going to affect the future. We want to understand what's going to go down. And that is exactly what Daniel's trying to figure out here. As he's listened to all of this and seen all of this play out with the goat and the ram and the horns and the big horn and the little horn and the tin, or excuse me, the four horns, I'm getting ahead of myself, and the four horns and all of this other stuff that's going on, he simply wants to understand. Look at what it says in verse 15. He says, when I, Daniel, had the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. So Daniel is confused, and all he wants to do is understand what he's seen, but thankfully, God is not a God of confusion. 
God is not a God of chaos. God is a God of order. God is a God who brings clarity, and God is a God who brings peace. And that is exactly what he starts to show to Daniel here, starting in verse 16. He says, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So Daniel's there. And he's like, God, what does this mean? I don't understand it. And you, you, you've got this guy that comes over and says, I'm going to tell you what it means. In fact, you hear this voice. It says it's an angel. Specifically, it says it's the angel Gabriel, which, interesting fact, first time you ever see an angel named in Scripture is right there. It's the angel Gabriel and this voice. Some would say this was God speaking to the angel saying, Gabriel, hey, go tell him what's about to happen. Calm his fear, give him a little bit of explanation. And Gabriel starts to explain not everything, but some of the things from his dream. So let's look at what he explains to him in verse 20. He says, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four horns arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Now we're going to stop right there because you already right there see a huge difference between what we looked at last week in Daniel chapter 7 and what's happening right now. In Daniel chapter 7, if you remember, he had this dream and there was the sea and the winds were blowing it and it was all chaos and these four different animals came up out of that sea and Daniel was trying to figure out what those meant and it was talking about different kingdoms, but God never said, hey, that animal is that king and that animal is that king. He didn't get that much clarity in that vision. Now, we can look at it from a historical standpoint and see exactly how all of that played out. But right here, God gives him much more specific information. He says, he says the ram, that's the, the, the king of the Medes and the Persians, those two horns. And if you know anything about history, when you look at the, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persians were actually greater in power than the Medes. So the Persians came in and overtook the Medes, and they became one kingdom, and that's why it says there's two horns there, but you've got one horn that's bigger than the other. So it's very specific detail, and you can go back and study history, and that is exactly what you'll find. And this is one of those amazing times where history lines up, and by the way, it happens a lot, history lines up exactly with what Scripture says. And then if you continue to walk through here, you see this goat. He says, the goat, that is the king of Greece. Now, there was some tension between the Persians and the Greeks. In fact, for a period, let me make sure I say it right, of about 200 years, the Persians had been attacking Greece and the Greek culture, and they had been coming after them and interfering with their affairs. And then along comes this guy. Have y'all ever heard of Alexander the Great before? Yeah, you've probably heard of him from history. He's the guy that comes in and leads Greece. Now, it was his father. His father is the one that brought all of Greece under one kind of empire, one kingdom. But it's Alexander the Great who comes in 
and he goes after this Medo-Persian empire. And, and history tells us that he conquered them in about three years, which to come in and take over an entire kingdom, an empire the size of the Medo-Persian empire, that was a big deal to do it that fast. So Alexander the Great was getting stuff done. And when he died, scripture, not scripture, history tells us he had two sons and his two sons took over. However, they had problems and they died. And then four of his generals took over. And those guys' names, let me make sure, I don't know if I can say them right, but it's Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Did I say that right? Is that close? What's that? Is the P silent? Okay, I can't ever, it's like pterodactyl. There's a P there, but you never hear it. What? <laughs> pterodactyl. But these guys, they come in and they take over. So, okay. You've got the first animal with the two horns. So you've got the Medo-Persian Empire. Then you've got the other animal that comes flying across, hits the first one, breaks the horns. You've got Alexander the Great, comes in with Greece, takes over the Medo-Persian Empire. So that's what we've got going so far. And then the horn that was on the ram's head, it actually, actually says that it, um, it breaks and there's four more that come up. So now you've got these four generals. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on here. But here's the kicker. You ready for this? This vision where Daniel is seeing this and writing all of this happened some 200 years before Alexander the Great was ever born. That's how you can trust the sovereignty of God. That God, that far ahead of something actually happening, can have someone see a vision, give them an interpretation, and write down what they saw. Because we have the advantage of history, don't we? We can look back, and we can look at how all of this played out, and we can see this is exactly what happened. But for Daniel, all of this is in the future. Some of the people he's dreaming about, they haven't been born and they won't be born for years and yet God gives him specific details because God is sovereign. Because God is in control of all of human history and all of creation. And as we go into these next couple verses here, this is where things are a little less clear for Daniel and a little less clear for us, but we're going to walk through them anyway. What Gabriel starts to do is he gives Daniel an explanation for verses 9 through 12 where it talks about the stars and it talks about the little horn and it talks about the 2300 evenings and mornings. So look at Daniel chapter 8 verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand." The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So that just got a little less clear. 
He's no longer saying, hey, this animal, that's this kingdom. This animal, that's this kingdom. He's giving some kind of generic explanation here. But if you go back and he's talking through verses 9 through 12, there are some scholars and historians who believe that this bold-faced king that he talks about right here is a guy by the name of Antiochus IV. Anybody ever heard of him before? Probably not. Not unless you've really gotten into history. In fact, that's a guy who gave himself a nickname, which is kind of lame to give yourself a nickname. You really should let other people do it. But he gives himself this nickname. It says his nickname was Epiphanus. Does anybody know what that means? Epiphany? No. It means God manifest. This is how highly he thought of himself. He gave himself a nickname that basically means God took care of me. God put me in charge. I am God. That's how highly he thought of himself. And, and history tells us, if you go through and see who he is, he was not a good guy. In fact, under his rule, some historians have, have estimated that he, he took approximately 80,000 Jewish women and children and just slaughtered them, just wiped them out took another 80,000 Jewish people and sold them into slavery, put them into slavery. Now we, we look at that and we look at our modern history and, and who's the closest person that we can think of from history that would resemble that? Hitler. Yeah, Hitler. So we, we look at our history and think, man, that guy was horrible. That's not the first time this kind of thing has happened. In fact, if you go through and you look at other historical books, there's a book out there called First Maccabees, and it's a great book of Jewish history. It's not scripture, but it does reveal more about who Antiochus was. That tells us that he tried to unify his kingdom by forcing the Jewish people to turn away from their laws and their culture. He banned circumcision. He ended sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. He even went as far... As defiling the temple, he made sacrifices in the temple that were against Jewish law. He took a pig and sacrificed it on the altar to God. That was a big deal. Scripture even, or not scripture, but First Maccabees actually tells us that he took a, 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 a idol dedicated to the worship of Zeus and placed it in the temple in the area called the Holy of Holies, which was like only the high priest could go there because that was where the presence of God dwelt in the temple. Nobody else could go there. In fact, the tradition tells us that when the high priest went in there, they would actually tie a rope around his waist. And I don't know if this is true or not. It's what tradition says. So if he went in there and he did something while he was in there that dishonored God and he dropped dead, they could pull him out of there. That's how sacred that place was when it came to worshiping God. And yet, that's what this guy, Antiochus, did. He even went and he burned copies of Scripture. He was not a good guy. And there are some scholars that believe that he is that little horn. As, as I've studied this, I, I fall in that camp. I believe that as well. But that's one of those positions that we probably need to hold a little loosely because we can't necessarily pinpoint it. But history kind of points us in that direction. And then it talks about those 23 evenings and mornings, and even that's a little bit unclear. Some scholars think that's 2,300 days. So they've got a time frame of 2,300 days. There's other scholars that think because it says evening and morning, that's talking about sacrifices. There was a morning sacrifice, there was an evening sacrifice, so you actually cut that time in half. It's not 2,300, it's what? What's the math? Somebody do it quick. 1,150, thank you. 
So now you've got disagreement between scholars on what that time frame actually is, and this is the hard part when you get into prophecy. Some of it's really clear, some of it not so clear, so we have to study it and do the best job we can to understand it. And here's the crazy thing. This is how hard prophecy is to understand sometimes. I want to jump to the New Testament for a second. Matthew chapter 24. I want you to listen to a conversation where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And there's something very specific he says in this conversation. Starting in verse 3, he says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they're asking questions about some of the things that Daniel was probably having in his vision, because they're trying to find out. Let's talk about the end times. And in verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You catch what Jesus just said? What does he reference here? What's that? He references Daniel. He says right there, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. That verse right there, 15, that abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of, if you remember back to Daniel's vision, it talks about how there's going to be the desolation. This is what scholars believe, this guy Antiochus coming in and sacrificing this pig on the altar that's dedicated to God, that it desecrated the temple. But understand what's happening here. When Daniel saw the vision, it was in the future. In Jesus' time, that had happened in the past. But look at what Jesus said. So when you see the abomination of desolation, he's talking about something that Daniel saw in the future, something that physically has already happened in the past, and yet he's telling the disciples, I want you to look for it in the future. It's blowing my mind. This is crazy stuff. He's talking about something in the past that's also going to happen in the future. That's why prophecy is hard to grasp sometimes. And what he's doing here is he's illustrating something that we see in Scripture over and over. It's this already but not yet tension that we live in as disciples. Because this one thing, this sacrifice that desecrated the temple, it's already happened. And yet the way Jesus is talking, he's saying, it's not yet. It's still coming. It's, it's the same idea that, that we know that Jesus has already come to humanity. He has already sacrificed his life. He's picked it back up. He's paid the price that is owed for our sin. That has already happened, and yet Jesus hasn't come back yet. It's that already not yet. 
You also see it when we talk about the kingdom of God. We know that one day everything is going to end. Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to bring all of creation back into order the way it was from the beginning. And scripture tells us the kingdom of God will reign on earth forever. So that's not yet, right? And yet the kingdom of God is right here, right now, through the believers in the body of the church. We are also the kingdom of God. So it's that already, not yet tension. And that's where we live when we try to understand some of this prophecy. And that's not a bad thing, but it's something that we've got to remember. It's a tension because we can't fully understand the mind of God and what he intends, but we can trust him and we can trust his written word, even when we don't understand every bit of it. Look at the last verse in Daniel chapter 8, verse 27. And I, Daniel was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel is struggling with what he's seen here. He's, he's wrestling with these images because it's been revealed to him and some of it he can grasp, some of it he can't, but it's okay. Because at that time, some of that didn't make sense to him. But one day, we look back, and some of that is absolutely clear to us. It's kind of like when the prophet Isaiah wrote this in in Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to these words. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, is, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for their transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. When Isaiah wrote those words, A lot of people would have read those words and had absolutely no idea who they were talking about. And yet we have the benefit of reading the New Testament and we understand that every bit of that in Isaiah was written about Jesus Christ. 
because that's past for us. That prophecy is our history. And we've got to understand that just like Jesus lived in the flesh as God willingly gave up his life on the cross to pay the penalty for the sin that you and I owe, we can't pay that price. It took Jesus Christ to lay down his life and yet three days later he rose from the dead, he conquered death, and he conquered sin. We can know that because we have the benefit of history. When Daniel is writing this, Daniel's confused because Daniel doesn't have that benefit. What we are seeing right now, what we are reading that scripture tells us hasn't necessarily come true for us, it's still prophecy for the future. But guess what? One day there's going to be believers and for them it's going to be their history and it's going to be crystal clear. That's the beauty of prophecy. We don't have to understand all of it. Because we can trust that God knows what he's doing. So what can we do in the meantime? Whether we grasp it or whether we don't grasp it, we can do what Daniel did in that last verse. We can do our best to understand it. Daniel was worried. Daniel was physically ill from all that he had seen. But he gets up and he goes about the king's business. He remained faithful to what he knew he had to do. And that is exactly what you and I can do. If you sit here tonight and you say that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, what you can do is you can remain faithful to him in uncertainty because you are certain. You are certain that God is sovereign. You are certain that Jesus is Lord. And you are certain that you can be forgiven of your sin through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even when you don't know what your future holds and you don't know where you're going to go to school, and you don't know who you're going to marry, and you don't know if you should date that person, and you don't know what your job's going to be, you can still be about the king's business every single day because you are certain of who he is and who his word says he is. And you can trust that he has a plan for your life, and that plan is to live faithfully, share the gospel, make disciples. That is what we learn from Daniel chapter 8. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that we can come together and we can spend some time trying to understand, God, what are we supposed to do to live a life that honors you and how we can even do that from confusing books like Daniel and Daniel chapter 8. God, I pray that you will help us. Help us to be faithful. Lord, help every single person in this room that's put their faith and trust in you to live with certainty and to be about what you have called each one of us to be as your disciples. God, if there's anybody in this room tonight and they're not certain they don't know you, God, they don't have a relationship with you, they've never asked for your forgiveness, God, I pray right now, speak to them. Speak to their hearts. God, draw them to yourself. Show them how much you love them. Show them what your son did.